This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 107, recorded on December 20th, 2022, the last uh, podcast of this calendar year. So we will see you in, or you will hear from us in 2023 after this. I'm your co-host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. But I'm flying solo today without my usual co-host as uh, Dr. Weigel has a conflict today, but we have a, a special guest with us today who's been making the, the news media rounds uh, from his the results of his study, and that's Dr. Martin McCabe from the University of Manchester. Welcome, Martin, and thanks for being here. My pleasure. So just reading up a little bit about you, just a brief introduction. It seems like you got your uh, Bachelor of Surgery and, and Medicine from the University of Cambridge. And then sometime later, about oh, at 14 years later, uh, doctor of philosophy. So you, you must have been a glutton for more education. Uh, and now you're a clinical senior lecturer in pediatric teenage and young adult cancer in the Division of Cancer Sciences at the University of Manchester. Uh, so uh, you're, tell us about sort of what has driven you in, in your career and what your passion is at the moment. So thanks for that introduction. Uh, yeah, so from a, on a clinical basis, I now look after adolescents and young adults, which in the UK means 16 to 24-year-olds with bone and soft tissue sarcomas and also with brain tumours. So I trained as a paediatric oncologist, uh, but uh, the, the job I ended up doing uh, was really academic research with a clinical bent in young adults. And why, why did I choose uh, to look after patients with bone tumours and brain cancers, which are really very different. The reason is because these are really the very poor prognosis diseases that that are largely paediatric cancers in a young adult setting. So that's where we really need to make the most progress with changing what we do to improve survival. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I I agree with you. I I tend to uh, limit my practice to paediatric sarcoma patients, uh, young adults as well, uh, but not brain tumours. That's a whole different area, different sets of meetings, different kind of science behind them. So we have all different teams. So how do you manage to keep up in both fields? That's a lot to keep track of. Yeah, it's a challenge, I would say. It's a, a lot of hard work, but also very rewarding. I mean, I think one of the things I noticed working in a really an adult setting, but looking after pediatric cancers, is that in pediatric oncology, there are some things that we view as very rare, like, I don't know, hepatoblastoma or something where you know, a decent sized centre might see one patient a year or one every other year. Um, whereas something like adult medulloblastoma in an adult centre is viewed as very rare, but actually that's, the, you know, we see the same number of adults with medulloblastoma in an adult brain tumour setting as we do children with, I, I don't know, you know, alveolar rhabdomyosarcoma or, or atypical teratoid rhabdoid tumour, which are really viewed as just our bread and butter cancers. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an oddball because I'm a paediatrician working in an adult setting, but I'm viewed by my colleagues in my centre as the expert in all things paediatric brain. Although, you know, if I'm in a European brain tumour meeting, I really don't feel like an expert in those things. So well, it's, all, it's all relative, I guess. 
I think it's hard to keep up in any one field for sure. These days there's so much knowledge, explosion of knowledge and uh, targeted therapies and everything else happening that I've, I've found it to be an exciting time to be in, in any of these fields because there's so much discovery work going on. But but yeah, it is it is hard to keep up. So yeah. it sounds like, uh, you know, you're managing. How do you split your time then in terms of percentage time seeing patients versus either academic or committee work or uh, administrative things? Yeah, so half of my work is clinical, doing clinics, doing patient-related admin, and well, just a bit less than half is clinical and just a bit more than half is research. And that research is a mix of the clinical trials that uh, that I'll be talking about today, plus uh, a bit of uh, epidemiological work. So I work with the English National Cancer Registry for children and young people, which is a really fascinating area of data and of course as as we cure more and more patients it means that it's harder to or that there are fewer and fewer clinical trials to put our patients into with good prognosis tumors so the observational data that we can get from registries becomes more and more important uh, so that's very interesting and then i, I do collaborative work with uh, lab-based scientists really doing translational work, trying to get the biology that we understand from preclinical models into the patients that we're treating in clinic. Yeah, it's really important to be able to do that. And there's that valley of death, they call it, you know, between the lab and the clinic, all the different regulatory steps and data that's needed to, and effort that it takes to launch, launch trials. So it's important we have people like you uh, in there doing that work and getting things to the clinic. Tell us about, we wanted to sort of focus today a little bit on the on the Recur trial that you ran and have recently presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting. Tell us about the genesis of that, sort of the idea originally and, you know, what led to it. Yeah, so uh, what led to it, as with a lot of these things, was actually a conversation at a railway station with a colleague, Jeremy Whelan, who's, uh, uh, you know, very well known to the Sarkova community. Uh, about how do we treat uh, patients with relapsed urines. And of course, in common with a lot of relapsed pediatric cancers, the evidence base that we that we use as our basis for all of the decision-making is, is very weak. And so in fact, when we looked at uh, relapsed urines, there'd been no randomized trials. We were basing treatment on very small numbers of published patients. Uh, so frequently, uh, you know, for something like gemcitabine docetaxel, which is one of the recur regimens, that was a regimen that was uh, particularly favoured in Spain when we talked to European colleagues. But actually, the number of children or adults who'd been treated with gem gemcitabine taxol was very small. And it was made up of lots of different series, each of which might have had two or three or four patients in. So the evidence base was just incredibly tenuous. And we thought, you know, there's an opportunity to do something here. Everybody who looks after you in Stockholm and nobody had the answer. There were actually some surprisingly strong opinions about how we should treat relapsed urines, given the lack of evidence. But what we all really wanted was better evidence. So it was actually very easy to bring a trial together. It was precipitated actually around a European discussion that we had about PARP inhibitors on the basis of a, a paper that was published in Nature uh, just 10 years ago now, showing preclinical evidence for PARP inhibitors. And that hasn't yet translated into great clinical activity, as you know. But it brought that that sort of brought together a meeting of a lot of Ewing sarcoma people around Europe. And there was an opportunity to get together and say, look, we've got this idea that we'd like to do a study. What do you think? And that really was the start of the whole process. 
Well, that is, uh, you bring up such a great point that we need evidence and we often don't have it. So we rely on anecdotal evidence or our own personal experience. And it may not be based in, in fact, it may be quite biased. And sometimes it's difficult to go back and test regimens that have been around a long time and say, all right, you know, how do, how do they really work? So did you uh, have trouble sort of coming up with which regimens to compare in this trial? Or was it pretty obvious? And were you worried about accrual? Uh, so we were certainly worried about accrual, yeah. I would say the, the regimen that everybody was using first was irinotec and temozolomide. It was everybody's favourite. You know, we did a, a formal survey around the UK, but just a straw poll of European colleagues said the same thing, and I, I know the same was true in the States. So we were all using irinotec and temozolomide, but we were all using slightly different versions of it, and most of us were using versions that had not been published in children uh, with Ewing sarcoma released. Um, and then the second commonest regimen was the topotec and cyclophosphamide regimen. And initially, the discussion was just doing a randomized head-to-head -head comparison with those regimens. But then when we got together as a European group and said, look, it's it's going to be quite a lot of effort to open this trial. Are there other regimens that we think we should be evaluating? And then we picked the gemtaxel regimen because it was in use quite widely. And then a lot of people were also using high-dose iphosphamide in a variety of settings. So sometimes on its own, sometimes with other drugs as part of ICE or VIP or one of those things. And when we estimated the number of patients, we thought we would probably be able to get away with a four-way randomization, but probably no more arms than that. There were, there were other contenders. So actually, even at the outset, the carboplatinitopside arm that's currently in recur was also a contender, but we felt the evidence, it, it was more of a newcomer, the evidence was weaker. And so we picked the four initial regimens to start with. And when we were setting up the study, even just among ourselves, but then when we presented it to various scientific groups, there was quite a lot of pushback about doing such a complicated study in a rare disease. And there was some suggestion that we should just simplify it and do a two-arm comparison between erinitic-continuous and topocyclo, but we, again, we sort of pushed back against that and said, well, look, this is a once in a lifetime chance to evaluate these regimens. Let's get as much out of it as we possibly can. And we were certainly worried about accrual. So actually when we were designing the study, it wasn't the cleanest design because we wanted to get as many patients as we possibly could. So for instance, we described in the protocol the first four or six cycles of chemotherapy. And then after that, it was investigators had free reign to do local control, surgery, radiotherapy, high-dose therapy, give more chemotherapy if they want, switch regimen, all sorts of things, which means that the data coming back is not that clean, but, but it is clean for the first six cycles. And of course, Unfortunately, event-free survival is not great in this disease. So by, by the time you've had six cycles, a lot of people are already progressing anyway. Yeah, that's right. It's been a quite a big challenge to relapse Ewing's. Um, did you have trouble getting investigators to agree to the exact same regimen if there were such different differences in clinical practice in terms of doses and administration and that sort of thing? So you, you get 10 clinicians in a room and there's 10 different opinions of what we should be doing, as you well know. The topocyclo regimen was easy because we were pretty much all using the same one. The, the rest, you know, we, we got there through negotiation and we all wanted this to work. So it wasn't terribly difficult, but we, we worked sort of on the basis that these are cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. So we're not looking necessarily for biological activity. 
the population we're giving them to is by and large young and therefore able to tolerate quite intensive chemotherapy. So we thought, let's give these regimens the best chance and use the highest doses that are either published or that we're all using. So the urine seeking team is on my regimen. Of course, everything that had been published in Ewing's used the low dose protracted, either one or two weeks of low dose urinotecan. But in practice, a lot of people had moved over to a higher dose regimen, which was also in use in rhabdo and neuroblastoma. So we, we chose that 50 milligram per meter squared daily of and actually in, in CTOS, uh, I noticed there was a, a poster there suggesting that we should go back to the low-dose regimen, which we can't do now. But the, it's still an open question that, you know, we don't really know what the best regimens are. For, for the gemtaxel regimen, again, I was pushing for higher doses. There was a bit of negotiation and, and anxiety that... Uh, that our adult colleagues hadn't used higher doses of gemcitabine or, or docetaxel. Um, so we ended up having a, a bit of a sort of medium dose. In fact, as it turned out, the toxicity for the gems, gemtaxel arm was less than for any other arm. So we probably could have pushed the dose up, but you don't know these things in advance. So there's a bit of negotiation, I must say. But, in the, in, you know, it was sort of, it was agreed pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, it seems like there are a number of groundbreaking features of this trial. One is getting people to agree. Uh, another is, you know, going back to tried and true medicines that we think have activity and then, you know, getting people to randomize on them because there's so many, these drug combinations have been around so long. Everyone has their own bias, as we talked about, and preferences. So to get them to agree to randomization is probably another big win that, um, that you had. Uh, what what other challenges were there in, in setting it up or was it pretty straightforward after you came to an agreement about the regimens? So we were very lucky actually in our timing that there was a, a European Union grant. This is in the in the good old days when the UK was still part of the European Union so we could apply for funding. Uh, I shouldn't really go into that in too much detail, uh, but but th there was a source of funding that would allow us to run a European trial. So we put a proposal together that had the recur trial, but also the first line trial and biological studies work packages and various other things. And that we were very lucky to get that. And I think without that, we would have struggled to get an international study open. Uh, the major hurdle actually in the beginning was just all the regulatory things, the regulatory hurdles that had to be gone through. So at least in every country, we had to get competence, authority and ethics approval. In some countries, every hospital had to get its own ethical approval. And there were, you know, every competence authority, every ethics committee had quibbles about the protocol, um, which delayed opening, but didn't at any point fundamentally change the trial design or what we plan to do. But it's just, it's a lot of time and effort and it a lot of delay without actually any meaningful change to the protocol, which is, this isn't used to anybody who tries to open a study, but it's frustrating. So, um, you know, it took several years for some countries to open and actually one country is, uh, of the initial planned countries is still not quite opened. So that was frustrating. I, I would say other than that, because this was a trial that everybody wanted to do, the main challenge is the rarity of the patients, but we actually recruited until the COVID struck, we recruited consistently very well because there was nothing else for these patients to do. So everybody was, although it's a sort of boring chemotherapy question, people were happy to put their patients into it because we all wanted more information at the end of the day. 
COVID was a challenge, but uh, we actually, at, at the peak, we were recruiting six to eight patients a month. Even during COVID, we were recruiting two to three uh, because we patients still need to be treated. And so it, there's nothing very difficult about this study because it's really standard of care with a bit of biological sample collection and quality of life questionnaires. So we actually did continue to recruit. And, and as some countries were coming down with COVID, other countries were recovering. So it didn't really stop completely. And since then, it's improved again. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, it does take so long to get these things done. And everyone wants to have their own say. And, and when they get, evaluate these, every committee, it does cause unnecessary delays, I think. Is this a trial that you think, since you guys are no longer part of the UK, you would have a diff, more difficult time now getting done? Or is it just if the funding aside, if you had the funding? Are the regulatory burdens even more so now? I, I think the regular, regulatory burdens are, they will always be there. They're different. You know, I think, you know, we, we all follow the same European laws, but every country interprets those laws quite differently. Uh, and, you know, I think the one of, yeah, so, so I, I think w w whenever you try to open a study, it's going to be pretty similar. Yeah, I guess we still got to keep pushing. So let's get into the results a bit. Yeah, I know you reported them. I don't know if you have any updates since then, but tell us the basics. How many patients did you accrue and what did you find? So overall, we've recruited more than 500 patients now. The study is actually still open. So it's an adaptive design, multi-on, multi-stage design. So the, the idea of that is we wanted a design that was as efficient as possible. Uh, we wanted the flexibility to be able to drop in, ineffective arms quickly. And then as new or interesting drugs or regimens came up, we wanted to bring them in as soon as we could, really. So we, as you know, we we um, dropped the first arm, which was the Gemtaxel arm uh, in late 2018. We presented that in ASCO uh, 2019. And that was on the basis of worse imaging response, which was initially our, our primary outcome measure, and also worse EFS and overall survival. We dropped the Irinity continuous olamide arm a year later, and we presented that in 2020. And I would say that was probably the most difficult point in the study because it was everybody's favorite regimen. There was a lot of surprise that it was dropping out. And in retrospect, actually, now that we have unblinded data for all the comparisons, there's very little difference between Irinity continuous olamide and topocyclo, and arguably, therefore, with not that much difference with ifosamide. But the rules that we set were that we would drop an arm and then we would drop a second arm, however little the difference was between that arm and the next best arm. And that was just on the basis that we're dealing with a very rare cancer. We couldn't carry on a four or three-way randomization for years and years. It would be too boring. And we wanted the trial to be more agile than that. So we dropped the Irinity continuous olamide arm, again, on the basis of worse uh, imaging response, which was still the primary outcome measure at that time, and also worse EFS. Um, but but there was very little difference. And although the arms were still blinded at the time, we could tell from the probability that Irinity continuous olamide was worse, that, 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 that there'd been a, a big probability that gemcitabine dostaxel was worse. There's a much smaller probability that Irinity continuous olamide was worse. And then we did the phase three comparison between topocyclo and ifosamide, which we presented at ASCO earlier this year. And in terms of results, there was a two-month difference in the median event-free survival. And we'd always planned that event-free survival would be the primary outcome measure for the phase three comparison. So that was a difference between 3.5 and 5.7 months, with ifosamide being better. 
And, and in terms of overall survival, there was a 10% difference in one year and two year overall survival. So a difference between 37 and 47%, uh, is that? No, sorry, that's six month EFS. The difference in overall survival was between uh, 45 and 55% in one year. So, you know, the, we, we were surprised that the phase three uh, comparison was done so early. We modelled initially that we would need at least 200 patients in each of the phase three arms to get any sort of confidence of a, a difference in outcome. But with only 73 patients in each arm, the data monitoring committee recommended that we close the randomization because they had obviously been watching this trend for a while and uh, they thought we couldn't uh, justify continuing to randomize patients if there was a 10% difference in the proportion who were still alive a year later. So on that basis, we closed the topocyclo arm and, and uh, we'd already brought in a carboplanet topside arm. So the, the trial is currently comparing hydroxyphosphamide and carboplanet topside. And we are hoping to bring in an ifosamide with lenvatinib arm early in the new year. So that's just going through regulatory work now. And that's very exciting for us, of course, because it's the first molecular, molecularly targeted therapy in the study. So, yeah, so I, I guess the most recent data that we presented was at CTOS in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. And that was we had a, an oral presentation of the all of the multiple pairwise comparisons because that hadn't been presented previously, and a poster of the overall prognostic factors for the for the whole trial cohort. So, you know, the, I think the important one of the real successes of the study uh, is that because of the design, rather than just having a two-way comparison, we've done uh, so far six pairwise comparisons. So each possible pairwise comparison between the, the different forearms. And that means, of course, that we've got a lot more comparative information. Now, because of the way the randomizations happened, some of those uh, comparisons have a lot more patients in. So the, the biggest one was between irinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitinitin
So in the Tekin team, it's all my patients have a significant uh, gastrointestinal toxicity. Again, none of this is new, but 25% of them had grade three diarrhea. So that's seven stools a day, which is, you know, for a disease that's very poor prognosis, where most people when they start treatment are in the last few months of life, probably, to be confined to the house with seven diarrheas a day, that's pretty toxic. And it's not something that as hospital doctors we necessarily see because the patients don't come in with it. They just stay at home and it's pretty awful. The two phase three regimens, so topocyclone and ifosamide, were both significantly more toxic than the other regimens in terms of mild suppression. And again, that's not a surprise, but one of the nice things about having head-to-head -head comparison was, for instance, to see that actually topocyclo is as toxic as ifosamide from a febrile neutropenia point of view. And when we look at the whole cohort, there were more patients had febrile neutropenia and topocyclo than in any other arm. So, you know, we've got, a, a, unfortunately, we haven't got any actual papers out, although we've presented the trial in numerous venues. But I think when we when we get the papers out, which will hopefully be soon, there is a lot of really good and important out, uh, uh, efficacy, but also toxicity data that we all as a community need. No, it's, it seems like a lot of great information for clinicians. One of the questions I'm thinking about is were some of these toxicities cumulative? In other words, especially, for example, the renal toxicity with IFOS and such that perhaps if you were to design a regimen where you were alternating these, I mean, because it sounds like all the different regimens had activity, they just, some were better than others. So could you sort of milk them for their what they're worth, you know, by uh, have you thought about alternating uh, them in cycles in the same patient over time and thus delaying some of those cumulative toxicities? Yeah, that's a really good question, which, to which I don't have an answer, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I mean, some of them were certainly cumulative, but not all of them. Uh, and actually, even, you know, I think what, one of the issues that we came across is because we called high-dose ifosamide high-dose, you weren't allowed in the protocol to have a dose reduction. So if you had if you had the predefined toxicity, you had to stop ifosamide, at least in terms of the trial. But actually, I know that there are some patients who had to stop because of, you know, electrolyte loss or whatever that, that met the trial thresholds, but their clinicians carried on giving it to them anyway, or they carried on giving it at a slightly reduced dose, although that wasn't allowed in the protocol. Whereas the other regimens, there, there were dose reduction written in. So a lot of those patients carried on. So artifactually, it looked as that, well, not just it looked as though there were a lot more patients on ifosamide who stopped early due to toxicity. But I know from correspondence and from the CRFs that we've collected, that a lot of those patients actually carried on having treatment. But it's a really good question as to whether we should have a, a regimen that alternates different uh, uh, chemotherapy um, to, to, as you say, uh, change the toxicities and hopefully make the cumulative toxicity less. Uh, we're, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to talk a little bit more about the future. Well, one thing I will say is it feels like you went through a lot of work to get this open in a lot of different countries. Um, and, and it was a lot of effort, but you've actually leveraged that by being able to adapt the protocol and continue it and add, you know, drop uh, lines and add cohorts and so forth. So that's that's exciting because then you can just keep the research going without having to stop and restart with a new protocol every time. So congratulations on that. We do anticipate getting these, you know, having you publish this results so that the information can be more 
widespread. But what the future of it, do you, do you anticipate, because you mentioned uh, adding a molecularly targeted agent, can you talk about that in particular? And do you anticipate sort of continuing this iterative, adaptive part into the foreseeable future as new ideas come along? That, that was certainly the plan from the outset, and, and we are keeping our ear to the ground about, uh, you know, other, other classes of drugs of interest. So the TKIs are really the, the closest to the clinic, which is why they're the easiest to bring in. But there are, you know, there's PARP inhibitors that have struggled with chemotherapy, but, they're, you know, there's still a rationale why they should be effective. mTOR inhibitors, CDK inhibitors, that you know, LSD1 inhibitors, there's various drugs that we're interested in that we'd like to bring in. Within the trial management group, we've agreed a set of criteria that we think arms should meet to be considered, high among which is industry buy-in, because of course, without industry support, we, we can't afford to use these drugs because they're pretty much uniformly very expensive. And we're lucky that uh, we have support to bring in Lenvatinib. That, that was very much our desire, just because we know how long it takes to open any study in a rare cancer like this, where you need to have many, many countries and centres open. And it, it's a very inefficient to just do a, do a small comparison, drop the study, then start from scratch with a new study. So it is absolutely our desire to keep bringing in new arms and evaluating them. But that's difficult because now that the European funding has ended, every country is now scrabbling to get its own funding. And so far, we've been successful for most countries, although some have had to drop out, unfortunately. But national funders don't really like funding a trial that's already open. Everybody wants something shiny and new. And so, it, you know, I think the longer the study stays open, the more difficult it would be to, to get national funding for it. But so far, fingers crossed, we've been lucky. And mostly it's in Europe and Australia, is that right? No, no sites in the US. We have tried several times to open in the US, but you know, there are some challenges. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I think it's really important work and we appreciate your efforts on this behalf and uh, on the behalf of all of our patients and Hopefully, uh, as you publish the results and continue to present them at meetings, uh, we can adopt some of the findings. And uh, oh, one last question I did want to ask, have you thought since our initial Ewing's is, is interval compressed chemo, have you thought about doing any other modifications of these traditional regimens such as interval compression? So we haven't actually in recur. That's a good question. There are only so many questions you can answer. That's the problem, <laughs> you know. And I think you know, with ifosamide being the winner, there's a lot of. I've had a lot of conversations with various people about using the 14-day ifosamide regimen, which uh, anecdotally is much kinder. Certainly, we've used it in my centre, and others have used it, and it seems to be less toxic. But I, I don't think it's safe for us to assume because high-dose ifosamide in this regimen is better than the other regimens, or albeit marginally, that any other high-dose regimen will be as effective. And I think, you know, my, my main message from this to everyone is that it's not impossible to do important trials in rare cancers. You just have to collaborate widely. And I think if there's a desire to, for instance, test the 14-day ifosamide regimen, or as you say, to alternate high-dose ifosamide with other regimens, we should do that, but we should do it in a controlled way in a trial, not just do it because it seems like a good idea. Yeah, well, I think that's probably one one of the main lessons your study has shown because everybody thought they had good ideas and <laughs> those got peeled away one by one, it sounds like. So. And actually, the, the thing, the question I would really like to examine in this study is a randomized question about high-dose therapy because of the, you know, there's so much observational data now that patients with relapsed hearings who have high-dose high therapy do better. And of course, there's the, the question is, do they do better because it's the good, the good players who then get high-dose therapy? 
and we'll never know that without doing a randomised trial. It's something that we discuss occasionally in the trial management group, but I think that is something that really needs a randomised trial to ask a question. The problem yeah. there is defining the, the right patient group to do it in. I keep trying to sneak in one last question. Uh, last question. How did you blind it? If these are different regimens, people know what they're getting. It wasn't blinded. It was oh, okay. Us. Okay. Yeah. I thought you said there was blinding. Okay. Perfect. All right. Well, that's great. Um, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for so much for sharing your your study, uh, trial, tribulations, results, and, and ongoing efforts with us. And uh, we wish you the best of luck as you move forward. Thank you very much. And it's been a pleasure. So that also thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsomdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.